are listening to your pod and your staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California. And our mission is to shape college-aged people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh. And we hope that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. Now, the topic of this conversation might not immediately be familiar to you, but everything about it and surrounding it is as foundational as it comes. The technical term of what we're discussing is moralistic therapeutic deism. It was coined after a long sociological study to describe the functional religious attitudes and assumptions of young people. And it sounds fancy, but it's really simple. This is all about how we see God. Not necessarily who God is, but how we assume he is. What we picture when we picture God. And from the seed of that simple idea, much of how we see the world grows. So it's worth taking a look at. It's worth asking the question, how do I picture God? What do I think about when I think about God? And is that right? And so Stanford, Miriam, and I are back together, and we're doing just that. We're asking those questions and more. And to lead us into that conversation, here's one of my favorite quotes. It's from C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. And I think it'll get us in the mood to ask these kinds of questions. Here's what he says. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms. But a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. I do not claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. And what is my hope for this conversation? That through it, we would see the Father in heaven more clearly and find him more beautiful. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, all of our friends and families. My grandma is probably listening to this right now, so welcome back to you, grandma. It is episode seven, and we are nearing the end of our little podcast journey, and I am here with my best friends in the whole wide world, Miriam Hamilton and Stanford Gibson. Hello to you all again. Hello. Hello, hello. Good to see you. This is our favorite way of communing nowadays is just on Zoom, stacked on top of each other on my screen. Um, Okay, to start, I just told you I was going to do this. So this is live footage. Okay, I'm going to hit you up with a little pop quiz about us, though. What do we, the three of us, have in common other than we speak at College Life from time to time and we all have vowels in our names? What do we have in common? The three of us. We only get one answer? Yeah, there's a right answer. Um, hmm. You can guess. We're not the same age. Stanford looks like he's about to guess. (laughs) We like books. (laughs) Sure, sure. We do like books. I prefer children's books. Iggy Peck Architect is one of my favorite books right now. Let me see if I can give you a hint. It is is something that we all own. Microphones? 
Microphones, that's true. <laughs> it's all something that we own that's bigger than a bread box. Car. Yes. More specific. Oh. Subaru. We all own yeah. a Subaru. It's funny because I, I, I got mine like three days before the pandemic. So I've driven it like four times. So I don't think of myself as owning a Subaru yet. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I had no idea that you had a Subaru. Yeah, it's new. It's a new thing for you. As you may or may not know, my Hyundai Santa Fe was murdered on the Bay Bridge. And so I joined the Subaru train after the death of my Hyundai Santa Fe. And I don't know about you guys, but I remember when we were looking at our Subarus, a lot of the times the marketing and the people selling us the car wanted to tell us was that it's really good for all your outdoor activities. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get stuck in the snow. And I just kept thinking, do they know who they're talking to? (laughs) (laughs) I'm... I'm not quite the outdoorsman that they might think I am, judging by the fact that I'm interested in Subarus. And I felt like such a poser the whole time. But it makes me feel good every time that the Subaru gets to actually be out where Subaru should be. Like, it sort of feels like in the movies when you release an animal (laughs) to the wild. It's like, this is where they should be. They should be in the snow where they're all-wheel drive. Is, yeah. is useful. I will say the few times I have like gone to the snow or something and they just wave you through, like that's worth the price of admission right there. That's worth it. Yeah. And like, you don't know how bad my tires are. <laughs> you really should not let me through. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So I want to tell you of one time where our Subaru actually got to be a Subaru and not just made the trip from Woodland to Davis on the straightest <laughs> and easiest roads that exist in the whole wide world. We were coming back from Christmas down in San Diego and Mason was four months old. And so we had this four month old in our car and we were driving from San Diego. It's like a nine hour drive normally, but it just like dumped in Southern California, like Southern California was just riddled with snow and rain. And so the grapevine was closed, which was like bad news. You know, it's like everyone in in the world. bad news. Yeah, it was coming up north and the grapevine was closed. Yeah. And so we got up super early and we're like, okay, we're going to go east, Hegafar, then we're going to go up over Bakersfield. That was the goal. (laughs) If it's not the five, I don't know what it is. (laughs) That's right. We had this whole plan. We're going to go east and then we're going to go north and we're going to get to Bakersfield somehow. That was the whole plan. And so we were cruising. We were dominating the whole game. And suddenly it just came to a complete stop. And you know how sometimes Google Maps just starts at one number. And then once you get into like really, really bad traffic, it just starts like creeping up and up and up. And it just feels like there's just no way to know if this is ever going to stop. So we start trying to research like what's going on with the roads. And it's like, this is going to be hours and hours and hours of sitting in this line. And Mason's being a champion in the back. He's getting red, pout, pout fish, giraffes can't dance. I mean, he's getting some entertainment, but we think that he probably has a limit. And so Uh we start thinking, how can we game the system? And so we freaking hang a Yui on the freeway. So we go over the median and we're like, okay, Google Maps says there's another way that's going to be like six hours shorter. So we hang a Yui and now we're going back where we came from and we're just following Google Maps. We're just blindly saying, we trust you. You are our hero right now. And so we're following that little blue line and all of a sudden we're taking these random turns off the freeway and then it tells us to turn on a dirt road and it's covered everything's covered okay. with snow and it tells us to turn on to something that is not a road i cannot stress to you enough there's not a pavement it's essentially just like a plane of snow and google's like okay turn here and you're like okay, no it's, google. it's like a tr- it's like a path but it's not a road and like you a- could make that out even even with the snow. yeah because there's lots of cars doing what we were doing too. Uh, oh, i see so I we're see. but everyone's going maybe five miles an hour and cars right. are getting stuck we're following this like civic and we're like man we're in a subaru and it feels tough. This Civic is screwed. 
like I got out of my car to help push the Civic because it got stuck. So I'm getting out of the car. I'm wet. It's just, it's chaos. But I'm seeing people get out of this and turning left. This is getting us to glory. We're going to go over to Tehachi Pass. So we follow this blindly thinking we're going the right way. This is the way to get home. So we finally get out of the dirt path and it was quite treacherous. And we, so we turn left and we're on our way. And then after about a mile, there's this semi that is cutting off the road and he's telling everyone to turn around because the path is closed. The, oh, the path no. over to Hatchy Pass is closed. So now Whoa. we're realizing, oh my gosh, what Google Maps is doing was, was seeing that the Hatchy Pass was open, but no traffic on it because it was closed and we just followed it. We just mm-hmm. said, we trust Google Maps. We're going with Google Maps. And now we feel stupid because now we're like, well, we lost our space in that long backup. Right to get over there and so the end of the story is not that interesting we go down to santa clarita we get some chipotle we regroup and then at that point the five opens so we go up to five wait were you south of the grapevine or north of the grapevine we were to the side of the grapevine so we had to go basically back <laughs> through like palmdale and lancaster and then oh, go back down goodness. to the grapevine to the base of the grapevine and then up the grapevine wow. so okay why do i tell you this story It's because what we're going to talk about today is similar to that just following Google Maps, thinking it's taking you in the right direction to then realize all along that it's actually taking you somewhere sort of a dead end. And maybe all along the journey, you're thinking, wow, this is really good. We're getting where we want to go. We're doing what we need to do. And then all of a sudden it comes to a dead end, like I said. And what we're talking about today maybe is a new term to you, but it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It sounds so fancy. It's very fancy. It makes us sound very smart. (laughs) Makes us sound a little pretentious. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on the pretentious side of things. Yeah, but really it's one of those words where it's, oh, that's just those three words put together. (laughs) It's like, it's like aardvark, paintball, yoga. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I think maybe what I want to start in terms of, I guess, getting down to the heart of how this conversation will go. But there is a quote from A.W. Tozer which I've used a lot of my talks. I think it's one of those things that kind of gets to the heart of things. And it's a simple, simple, simple idea. But you realize if you look at it enough, how big it is and you sort of see it everywhere. It's just simply this. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This idea that the the image of God that comes into our head, who we think God is just sort of on a default level, dictates so much, not only about our worship, but just about everything that we do and how we live. And you can imagine, like, if you think God punishes everything that you do, that will dictate how you live. You will live in fear. Or if you imagine a God who is super lax and chill all the time, that it's going to dictate how you live. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I kind of think that might just be a good place to start this conversation, because the more I think about this term, which again, we're going to get to, it does seem to be so much about how we envision God. And and the reason I told that story is that in our minds, we were not aware that we were going the wrong direction. We were not constantly evaluating, is this the right direction? We were pretty elated by the fact that we felt like we had figured it out. And there's just something really compelling to me and tragic to me about going the wrong direction and not knowing you're going the wrong direction or thinking the wrong Mm -hmm. thing and not knowing you're thinking the wrong thing. I was thinking of Forrest Gump and there's that scene where he's running and he just wants to run. That's really the basic idea. He just wants to run. And yet he starts to pick up this following of people who assume he must be doing something political. He must be making some sort of statement. And so they follow him under the assumption that it's more than just him running. And then they find out when he stops, he's like, I'm done running. There was nothing more than that. And just being sort of disappointed, like I had given my time and my energy, I started running to follow this guy because I thought he had something to say, and he didn't. And it's just that idea of you think that there's something there, 
and it ends up not really being there. And so investigating this moralistic therapeutic deism was something that, you know, I've been interested since seminary when I really investigated the idea of this and, and heard the term really for the first time. But I don't know, sometimes when you talk about it, you can come across as a little bit, uh, I guess, pretentious. You can sound sort of armchair philosopher, armchair theologian. Let me pick apart all the things that you think and let me show you how you're wrong kind of thing. But when we sort of fielded questions from students at the beginning of this whole process, there was a couple of people who wanted to know about it, which surprised us and also made us think maybe we should explore it. And I'm glad that we have. I'm glad that we put in some time to, to think more about it, because the more I do think about it, the more I not only see it in myself, but I definitely see it pervading our culture. And I have talked a lot and have sort of buried the lead, unfortunately, where I keep mentioning the term and we don't know what it is yet. It certainly has a lot of potential to feel pretty pretentious, but also your whole introduction about, you know, we can be going one direction and not realize we're on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that honestly makes me feel terrified. Like, right. oh my gosh, is that me? Yeah. And as we've been just talking about this and I've been doing a little bit more research on it, there's so many things that I'm like, oh my gosh, is that me? Is that me? So maybe that's helpful for people who are listening. Like, <laughs> you're not alone if this feels a little bit um, revealing. But we should explain what this is, moralistic therapeutic deism. Please. Will you take us there, Merm? Yeah, I'd love to. Like Peter said in this survey we had about what people wanted to hear on the podcast, had a few people who said they wanted an episode on moralistic therapeutic deism. And when I read that, I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I did a little bit of research and I was like, oh, I think I know what that is. I just didn't have the terminology right, for it. And right. I think that will probably be the case for most people who are listening that this will ring some bells. So this is essentially just like a way of thinking about the world. It's not a religion. It's a sort of a worldview. And it emerged from some research that a man named Christian Smith and a woman named Melinda Lundquist Denton conducted in the early 2000s through the National Study of Youth and Religion, where they telephone surveyed like 3,000 people across the states through random sampling and did over 250 interviews with students and wrote a book about it called Soul Searching. And from all of this content that they got from young adults on, on religion, they coined this term moralistic therapeutic deism. I think that's a great summary, Marianne. I think the one thing I'd add is, now this is Notre Dame. Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame and uses sound methods. You know, it's not a, this is in some corner of the internet. This is mainline sociological research. Right, right. We didn't just find this on Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there are five tenets that Smith and Denton lay out in their book and in their research. And the first tenet of moralistic therapeutic deism is that there is a God who exists, who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Tenet number two God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So basically, you should do your best to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Tenet number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Tenet four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So these are the basic tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah, and I think it's... Uh helpful to think about, you know, these aren't like the five pillars of Islam or something like that. They're not deductive, right? They're not the stated claims of a moral or philosophical system. They're inductive. They're empirical. Basically, Smith and Denton looked at what are the commonalities among these 3,000 young people, which, you know, this survey was a while ago, and said, these are the kind of common themes of young adult spirituality, regardless of, you know, background or actual religious practice. Right. And it's not like a religion on its 
own, but they describe it as being a parasitic religion where it, it's feeding off of the principles and the, the structures, values, understandings of other major religions like Christianity and Islam and Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to go back to the stories I told at the beginning, people don't necessarily think that they are a moralistic therapeutic deist. They wouldn't say that about themselves. You can't buy a bumper sticker. (laughs) You can't document that on the census. (laughs) That's right. It's not a checkbox on the census. You know, there's no t-shirts. Right. And just like sort of no one would have said about following Forrest Gump, I'm following someone who has no point. They would say, I'm following this person who is making a statement about running. Or we wouldn't say, hey, I'm following this dead end. Like I'm choosing to go on this path that's going to end up going nowhere. But it's the functional way that you're living out your worldview. You may think that you have a different thing. You may sort of ascribe to Christianity, but functionally you're living this way. And functionally you think that God exists and created the world, but really is not involved until you need something from him. And I know that Smith, at the very least, has used like the the people who fall into this worldview or tend to see God as somewhere between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. That really God exists to make you feel good, to give you what you need as a butler and then ease your psychology, I guess. He's sort of like, please, can you just take care of my problems, deal with my difficulties? But when I don't need you, you don't have to be involved. I'll just go to you when I have a problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of like office hours at UC Davis. <laughs> if I have trouble and if I don't get it, maybe I'll go to office hours. But if I don't get too involved in my world, in my life, professor, if I don't need your help, I'll come to you. And then you expert person can be there to just help me whenever I need it. I've always found that really interesting because, you know, my kids now have office hours because they're Zooming at school. Yeah. And so they can have office hours with their third grade teacher. And I was talking mm-hmm. to my daughter about how important office hours are to a college career. You actually have access (laughs) to a global specialist every week and you don't go. I This is one of the shocks (laughs) of undergrad to me is that I had access to a global specialist. Oh, and I had a problem set that was due the next week that that specialist developed for my formation. And I showed up and in a class of 300, there were four of us. That also has religious implications. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there is this sense of, you know, one of the things that a professor friend of mine says about getting the most out of your college career is go to office hours, even if you don't need the help, just get to know these specialists and what animates them. And I think that there is a really interesting parallel there that, you know, if you go to office hours, just because you don't know how to fix the problem set, you are not really understanding what college is about. Yeah, Katie, I remember when she was preaching on John 17, she did the college life preaching class and she compared it to office hours. She compared to like listening in on Jesus's prayer to God as sort of getting to go to office hours and pick the brains of these brilliant historians that she got to go to school with. And she had eh, maybe some professor crushes, but she just like (laughs) loved the idea of getting to spend time with these people who were brilliant. But I think the distinction you're making is that moralistic therapeutic deism is more like a transactional office hours that I have a specific need and I'm going to go and take care of that need and not really have much use for this unbelievable individual that I could be interacting with. Right. And that feels a little tricky to me because my immediate reaction is like, oh, I should stop asking God for things or I should stop bringing my problems to him because then am I just like using him? And that's not the answer. That's not what we're talking about. And there's a difference in like you only go to God when you have problems and when you want something from him and 
when you really evaluate that, you're pretty much just using him or some idea of him versus the like, oh, I actually have like a relationship with this God. And so, mm-hmm. of course, he's going to know like the ins and outs of my life and which includes things like psychological distress. And that's not like a bad thing to do. That's a really mm-hmm. good thing. Well, it feels like Katie and I often talk about how we're in this like really sweet spot with Mason because like he snuggles us and he's like loves us. He like smiles at us all the time. Right. He hasn't spurned us in any way. Yet we know that yeah. a spurning right. is coming at some point. And there's a trope in parents with early adulthood children. It's like, oh, they only call when they need money or they only call when they need something, you know? And it's like, that's sort of that transactional relationship. It's like, you think of me as someone to just meet your needs when you have a need. I'm not someone Mm -hmm. that you want to have a relationship. I'm not someone that you want to share joys with. I'm not someone that you want to lament to. I'm just someone who is here when you need me to fix something. But when I don't need Mm -hmm. to fix something, you're free to ignore me. Versus even like your relationship with Mason right now, where he's utterly dependent on you and Katie for everything but you're not you're not drawing conclusions from that like oh he's just using us and he doesn't actually love us or acknowledge the relationship here you know right and that i think is helpful for framing this too is that if you are dependent on god it doesn't mean that you're just using him but that there is a point in which you you could be neglecting the relationship and just using him does that make sense those are just sort of like initial alarm bells that ring in my head. Yeah, I think it makes sense because even in the parent analogy, if you have this relationship with your parents where there's sort of a robustness to it, it's not just I'm coming to you when I have a problem, but you sort of get to see all my life and I'm involved in your world or whatever. And then you do need something like that's a different thing to go ask at that point, you know, when it's like it's in the context of relationship, it's not just in the context of transaction. That's a different thing because I do think it would be a mistake to hear what we're saying is, oh, okay, well, then God does not want me to come to him with problems. Or, you know, the second tenet is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. It would be wrong to think, actually, God doesn't care about that. <laughs> God doesn't right. care for us being nice to each other. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. But there's something more that this is missing, you know. I feel like I want to say before we even really get to picking at these tenants and sort of picking at this functional definition I feel like I've been having this strange experience of simultaneously being, yeah, it's very important to talk about these things because I actually think it's dangerous. But at the same time, having a lot of empathy for the existence of this thought process, the existence of this worldview. The reason is, Mm -hmm. I think that it is a response to perceived religious bigotry. You know, this is not a new statement, but often religious people, people of faith are seen as judgmental and can be judgmental, have been judgmental and seen as bigots of just saying don't do that, you're evil, all those things. Somewhere along the line, I think there was a sentiment of we don't want to be that kind of person. We don't want to be these kinds of people, but we don't want to just throw out all of our religious sentiment as well. So a certain sense of, well, maybe we can have both. Maybe we can believe in God and also not be a bigot. And I think that impulse is right, because I don't think that the God of the Bible would invite the sort of bigotry that has hurt so many and characterize a lot of ugliness in religion. I don't think that that's what our God would want us to live into. But I guess that what I'm seeing in this is perhaps the pendulum swinging so far the other direction that you just lose a lot of the distinctives of what makes Christianity Christianity, which we'll get to. But I don't know. I just I feel like, again, before we sort of play the part of picking this apart, I just feel like the impulse seems good. In the same way, like when we're traveling back from San Diego, our impulse is just to get home. Like that's the motive. Our motive is not to bastardize the trip. The motive is not to bastardize Christianity. I think the motive was there's there's some things that are ugly here in this bigotry and we kind of want to untangle them. 
but I think in untangling them, you've sort of lost the whole rug. You've lost the whole carpet, you know? Another thing that I thought it could be interesting to do, whenever you talk about mm-hmm. anything that's based on tenets, you know, anything that has, here's a list of five things that we believe, it's sort of hard to know how that plays out in life. And and so I thought it'd be interesting if all three of us could just share stories when we've noticed that we've lived into this moralistic therapeutic deism. Because I do think a lot of this cozies up very easily to an American dream narrative that the goal of life is to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard. It's about being good and having the right values mm-hmm. and and sort of doing the right thing and, and having a, as easy a life as possible. Miriam, you used the term like parasitic. I think the reason why it can attach so easily to us in this culture is because it fits so closely with just the national narrative and the cultural narrative that we live in. And so just by being a Christian and be living in America, I think some of this is going to get into our operating systems, especially if we don't aren't aware that it sort of exists and it's possible that it might. And so I thought it'd be interesting for us to do a little bit of storytelling of like, when have we seen this seep into our life and in our world? And I think two things. I think one, it might humanize this thing, but also it could help people listening realize, oh, when have I been living into a moralistic, therapeutic, deist way of seeing God and seeing life when maybe I even thought the whole time I was following Jesus? Like, when have I been following this random dirt road and when I've actually been on the right path. So do you guys have any stories of when you've noticed in yourself that you've sort of lived into this reality? The the story that I thought of is actually pretty early in my biography. You know, that without going too deep into kind of where I came from, you know, I, I came from an agnostic immigrant family that was kind of religiously adjacent. You know, there was the sense that God might be real, but no content. God had no form. And so there was kind of a transcendentalization of, you know, the American dream because my mom was a first generation immigrant and we were the embodiment of the American dream. I remember sitting in my third grade classroom and I was not a strong third grade student. I spent most of the time (laughs) um, drawing and making up narratives in my head. Back then, if you didn't get your seat work done in the morning, you would miss recess. And I would always be in the room with all the bad kids who had to do their work during recess. (laughs) Um, did you say the term seat work oh my goodness yes basically back then is that a phrase um, is that a term uh, yep you basically you were given like (laughs) six worksheets that you had to do for the first half of the day up until lunch and that was school and um yeah uh it makes distance (laughs) learning look even better (laughs) but it produced you yeah it did not you it did not um the um, Yeah, yeah, I think those might be yeah. unrelated factors. Yeah, the, uh, the state university system produced me. Anyway, this is why I love the UCs, even if I have a complicated relationship with them. Anyway, I, that's not where we're going. I'm sitting in my seat as a third grader, daydreaming as usual, thinking about things that weren't the math that was incredibly boring. And I remember that there was a crisis. I don't remember what it was. There's almost no crisis that a third grader can have that is actually a crisis. (laughs) But I remember thinking, I know that I can ask God for things. And so I asked God for it. And then I found later in the day, I had another crisis. And so I asked God for that again. And I thought, surely there must be a limit to this. Surely this is not an unlimited, like, get out of jail free card. And so I made a rule. As a third grader, I made a religious rule that I could only ask God for three things a day. And so that was my rule for like years. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I, I had to. God is the sweetest. <laughs> I had to actually like 
think about, is this something worth bothering God about? Because I'm sure God is busy and I'm going to be bothering God. It can't just be for every little thing, every little problem that I got myself into trouble for. Um, But the thing that always struck me about that is that's like literally genie talk. I like was literally imagining God as a genie. And I think that Tozer quote is really appropriate because the way we imagine God is something we don't talk about because we think that if you imagine something, it must be imaginary. And so we, we, we're not comfortable using that word, but we imagine everything. Yeah. You cannot read history without imagining it. Like the imagination is part of the way we access reality that isn't right here, right now. Understanding how coronavirus is playing out in Nebraska is an act of imagination where you're interpolating data. And so the way we imagine God, the way we interpolate empirical reality is a huge part of who we are. And I was imagining God as a genie. There was no content in my life that suggested that that should be any other way. Yeah, I just I love that. I'm so interested in that all the time. I remember there was I told a story on on houseboats a couple of years ago. We were sitting out. Do you remember Crush Burger? It was over by Pete's in North Davis. Miriam, you were a distant thought at that point in time when Crush Burger was around. Katie and I were eating it. As in not alive yet or? <laughs> no, you were alive. No, you, you might alive. have been in third grade though. Our, our, <laughs> our story in friendship was just uh, we had chatted over um, peeling, peeling grapes. grapes. That's, that's the extent began. of how I knew you. Yeah. Anyway, so I was eavesdropping on this conversation between this kid and their dad. And this kid was asking about God. Who is God and why do people believe in God? And the dad said something like, God is whatever people need him to be. And some people need God to be this sort of like crutch to lean on. And then he said, but you can think what you want to think about God. So you can decide Mm -hmm. for yourself. That kid's not going to think any different than what you just told him. Like you have so much power, father person, to dictate Mm -hmm. how your child is going to think about God. And so this idea of like, oh, you can just invent what you want to invent. I'm so interested in like what those early views about God do to like the rest of you. And so like you had this early working definition of God that he, you can ask him for things, but you better figure out the right thing to ask him and you can't do too much or else you'll be a a nuisance. So it's just like that, Mm -hmm. that didn't come from anywhere empirical. Like that was just a working definition that you had as a third grader, but I'm sure it has some sticking power. Yeah, that brings me to something that I was thinking about when I was realizing that this whole worldview, I might not have had the terminology for it, but as we were talking about it, I was like, oh, I've encountered this so many times in my life. And I was thinking most poignantly about this English teacher I had in high school, and she was a fine teacher, and she was a really nice person. <laughs> Every week, though, it seemed like we got distracted a lot in this class. We, we didn't take it very seriously. She would be on this tangent about some new thing she learned. And like five times out of 10, it was some tenant of some religion that she found particularly interesting that week. And one week it was like, some philosophy behind Hinduism or something she knows that Jesus was known for doing that she thought was really cool. And she would kind of make her comment about how Jesus was like the ultimate hippie. And <laughs> how she really respected him for, you know, standing up for those who were oppressed. And this was just normal topic of conversation, just different things that she found interesting from different religions. And it seemed like she was just picking apart whatever she liked and putting it together into her own personal religion. It seemed really harmless, but then she would also have like periodical journal prompts where we'd get into the classroom and she'd have this question up on the board and we'd have to spend like 10 minutes just writing about it. And I remember one time 
I got into the classroom, took my seat, and she started showing us this PowerPoint of these horrific images of great tragedies throughout the world. Like, And she finishes this 10-slide PowerPoint or something with the question, if all of these things happen, how could there be a God? Mm-hmm. It was like this super loaded prompt. Yeah unrelated to what we were talking about. But yeah, as we were talking about this, I was like, oh my gosh, like in that class, she was she was totally bought into this idea of like moralistic therapeutic deism that really fits well with our culture of like consumerism. You kind of just get to take what you want and of this hyper individualism, like I just get to define my own truth. It's sort of about like what fits for me and this moral relativism of like, Morality isn't really dependent on anything, but mostly just dependent on my own definition of what it means to be a good person in this world. Mm -hmm. And I could see the way that that like really messed with my head as I was, you know, a young Christian trying to understand all of these questions myself. Like, I don't know how a good God could exist if all of these things are happening, but it doesn't seem okay to just pick and choose Mm -hmm. but also it kind of feels better to do that because then i don't have to actually deal with these questions i can trace the way that that cultural understanding of what religion looks like in a way that fits into our culture has done to my own understanding or like my own engagement with hard questions because it seems just like so much easier to pick and choose because if you're dealing with a hard question and christianity doesn't seem to offer the answer that you want then you can just choose a different philosophy to answer the question in a way that leads to the least amount of dissonance. That's less so about me. It was just like, you know, a, a teacher I had who really seemed to embody this. And I can see the way that certainly like my peers and myself really kind of struggled with this and like hearing her talk and thinking, yeah, like that sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. Why is it not quite sitting well with me though? Yeah, I this has been on my mind the last couple of weeks as we've been thinking about this. And so this is a Monday. Last night was Mother's Day. And we had this grand plan where we were going to go get burgers and brew takeout and eat it at Central Park. And I think everyone in Davis mm-hmm. had that plan because burgers and brew was was loaded. And so it got to the point where like we could no longer be there because we had to take Mason back. But I was putting Mason in the car and I this is this is like deep psychology. So get ready to enter my world. But I literally thought, dude, he is so cute. I can't believe how cute he is sometimes. And there's a point to this. It's not just to praise him. But I think Katie and I both have this little bit of a working definition that blessings come when you've proven yourself. You know, blessings come when you have done the right thing. And so there's sort of this combination of this moralistic therapeutic deism of like the point is to be good and nice and kind, which when you want to put it in just Christian terms, you might just put a blanket term like faithfulness. You equate faithfulness with being good and kind and nice. And then you combine that with like God is there to solve your problems and sort of give you what you want. And so we kind of look at Mason sometimes, and I think that there actually is somewhere deep in us, this idea, we must have done something right to have gotten this kind of baby, you know, (laughs) which as I say it out loud, I'm embarrassed about all the things that that makes me sound like, but it shows that there is this connection that I wish was not there. Like, I don't think that this is how God really orders the world or how he deals with us. Just like your current blessings are attributable to your past faithfulness. If you sort of pull on that thread, that means people in terrible situations could only point to the fact that, oh, maybe I was unfaithful in the past and that's why this bad thing's happening. You know, it's like, I just don't believe that to be true. Like, I really, really don't believe that. But functionally, 
that's how I interact with God. When I really, really want something, I think about being good. I just noticed that kind of thing happens all the time. Or we've been pretty disappointed. Just one of the casualties for us in the coronavirus thing is that we had this daycare situation for Mason sort of all set and ready to go. And because money's tight, the daycare is having to shrink. And so Mason is back on the wait list. And this is all in the weeds of early parenthood stuff. So it's not that interesting. But we so celebrated the fact that God had blessed us with this thing that we were so excited about. And we, we really made the decision we are going to pray for this faithfully and we are going to pray for this expectantly. God can do something about this. And then it felt like he gave us this good gift and we felt like we really lived in gratitude. And so it just didn't make sense that it was taken away. It didn't make sense that it was like, wait, but you gave us this. Why would it now be gone? And it just didn't compute with my view of God. It's like my view of God was this simplistic, like we showed ourselves to be faithful and we were given the thing. But when you read the scriptures, you see things like that happening. So we shouldn't actually have been surprised. We've read the scriptures, but you just see those types of things creeping up of like the way I'm responding to this shows me that what I think about God is distorted somehow. And it's distorted, I think, in this direction. And I do remember when I was a junior and senior in high school, I was really fed up with the way Christians would talk about feeling guilty and shameful all the time. And I just kept thinking, there's no way God wants us to feel this way. Like God loves us. Which again is like not a terrible impulse. So I, my buddy Sean and I, after every youth group, we would play ping pong for hours and just pick apart youth group and build our own theology off of basically that idea. God would not want us to feel bad. God would not want us to feel guilty. And so we built this working theology of like, you only need to ask for forgiveness once. And once you do, then you're sort of in, you know, and yeah, you might sin, but God loves you and would rather you feeling good about yourself than have you feel bad about yourself. So why not just not feel guilty anymore? And, and so we built this whole thing. I think that was a really important season for me because it was almost like I, I guess I started doing my own thinking and realized that eventually it wasn't until I sort of got involved with college life that I was like, actually, this doesn't work. Like it, it eventually is bankrupt. It's just my thoughts, you know, and those are not robust enough to hold the weight of a whole worldview. But it really started from that idea of Christians are feeling pretty guilty all the time. And it lost things like repentance, lost things like even the conception really of sin, things that are seen sometimes as bad parts of the Christian worldview or the Christian life in favor of just general positivity. And going that direction made me realize well, there's a lot of stuff really attractive about this. It felt freeing at first, but at once I lived with it for a while, it just felt so thin. Like, I didn't feel like I had much of a relationship with God. And so far, the stuff we've talked about is stuff of little consequence. It's high school yeah. philosophizing, basically, which we all yeah. did. But when it hits the real world, it matters. We had a friend who left his wife for another woman shortly after college. And when we pressed him on it, he said, listen, I'm not happy. Yeah. I'm going to be happier in this other relationship. Doesn't God want yeah. me to be happy? And there's this sense in which it's the wrong metric because it's not real. And so it does have consequences as it plays out over your adult life, as the stakes start to increase. And as you know, some of the things that God calls us to be faithful to don't always rate highly on the happiness metrics as we tend to rank them. Yeah, I think that is super well said. And what I thought we could do is think, okay, we'd be not hard to read the subtext of this conversation so far as we don't think someone living with these sort of tenets will, I don't, we don't think it matches the Christian life or what the, the scriptures are teaching. And it's Christian adjacent, sure. And there's things that we don't want to just totally debunk, or there's things that we can be like, oh yeah, we affirm that sort of idea. But I thought it'd be good to just sort of compare and contrast Orthodox Christian thinking and, and this idea. Like what's different? Like if we're saying this is wrong, how is it wrong? What is it missing? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that in some ways this is straight up wrong. And also in a lot of other ways, it's just not quite the whole truth. Yeah. And, which is 
what makes this conversation more exciting because then even if it might be more challenging, when we talk about how Christianity is is different than this, we get to talk about like how much more rich and full and and deep it is. You were just talking about this idea of happiness. And I think that's a big part of point of, of divergence between these two things is Christianity is, isn't saying that God does not want you to be happy. I think he delights in us being happy, but also there's way more to life than that. And this idea of what life is about, <laughs> it doesn't promise, Christianity doesn't promise that life is about happiness. But I do think that there's there's something that happiness tells us about what is right in the world. But to fixate on that is to totally miss all of scripture that talks about you know, the suffering that we will face as humans in the world and also specifically as followers of Christ in all of the ways that Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. We're not fooled about where we're going. We're going to go be crucified mm-hmm. and that's going to be really painful. And it might not be a literal crucifixion, but what the heart of that is self-giving, sacrificial servant love, mm-hmm. which is inherently different from the self-centered self-love of this moralistic therapeutic deism. That being said, though, like we don't as Christians suffer for the sake of suffering just so that we can feel like we're being obedient. But what it looks like to follow Jesus into the world and to say, I want I want to be a part of your kingdom is that we're going to bleed. It's going to cost us something. We're going to need to sacrifice something and we're going to need to deny ourselves. Oftentimes what we think is going to bring us happiness. But ultimately in that he's promising something a lot more. You know, this verse of my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Like that verse I wrestle with all the time. Like, what do you mean by that? Because you're telling me like your yoke is easy. And at the same time, you're also telling me to pick up my cross and follow you. And the only way that has made sense to me is understanding the yoke of Jesus as being relationship with him, Mm -hmm. where I'm following him and I'm trusting him. And I'm not trusting myself in my own idea of the good life and the burden that I carry of following the good life is actually going to weigh on me more than the burden of picking up my cross and following him. And I probably like 95% of the time, I don't really trust that. But there's like 5% of the time where I'm like, no, I think that, I think that's really Mm -hmm. true. You know, I might not get everything I want in life, but the life that Jesus is calling me to rings true to who I actually am created to be. And when I walk in that, I'm walking in a way of right relatedness with my creator, someone who actually made me and knows exactly how I work and knows exactly what I'm made for and is going to lead me on a path of satisfaction, even if it comes with suffering and hardship. And even if he's asking me to sacrifice on behalf of those I love, on behalf of the world. That's a really vague picture of the different things that Christianity is promising versus what this MTD worldview is promising. But I don't think it's inaccurate. I don't think that being happy is a bad thing. I just think that there's good news in that Christianity is promising something much richer and much deeper Mm -hmm. and much more uh, robust than just happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we were doing our studying of loneliness and one Mm -hmm. thing that we interacted with was that when we in the West want to make ourselves feel better, we tend to do something for ourselves. I just want to curl up with a good book or I just want to just take this day off. No responsibilities. That's going to make me feel better. Netflix and and chill. Yeah. Yeah. Netflix and chill, all that stuff. And that in other cultures, when they want to feel better, they actually do something for someone else. They channel their energy to bless. And it seems like the metrics, this is why a podcast is great because I'm under no burden right now to give you the exact numbers, (laughs) but just to remember what I heard one time. So generally, 
the people who did something for themselves ended up not feeling much better. But generally, those who did something for other people really felt better. And so what that shows you is that what you think of happiness might not actually be yeah. the key to joy. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to think, oh, God wants me to be happy, I think the immediate question would be, what does that mean to you? Does that mean right. general feeling good, freedom, no bounds? I don't know. So I, I think exactly what you're saying, Miriam, it's like that. Actually, it's not that God wants you to be unhappy. That's not what we're saying. But God wants you to be something different than what you think of happiness is. God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to live with a robustness of gratitude, which is all like yeah. you would describe someone who's joyful and grateful as someone who's happy generally. But the path to that yeah. might not just be you focusing on your happiness. The path to that might sometimes be self-sacrifice, might sometimes be giving yourself away, might sometimes be something that at the moment in time does not look like something that would quote unquote make you happy. I feel like this was one of the biggest culture shocks for me. Like moralistic therapeutic theism is my kind of native religion. It's what I grew up in. And like I was a hard convert to Christianity. And I found the scriptures shocking. They were, they were like shockingly disinterested in my happiness, which was my yeah. motivating objective function. You know, like I've taken some, some optimization math classes and in optimization math, you have what's called an objective function and you create an equation that drives what's the objective of this optimization. You create a goal, which is the objective function. And all of the math kind of is driven by that goal. And I think up until my Christian conversion, my objective function explicitly stated was happiness. That's what I thought the goal of human life was. And I found that the language of the scriptures, faithfulness, contentment, these things that aren't like just rapid dopamine firing, I think is what we really attach happiness to. But, you know, that actually tries to get us past that dopamine reward cycle to something that's more lasting, more fulfilling, that echoes for generations is actually what the scriptures really deeply desire for us. Yeah. And but like it did remind me of a situation I had with a student a bit ago before any of these students currently, but there was a student who was one of our Bible study leaders. He was under 21 and he was getting drunk with his friends. And so we had a conversation at Third and You, how this is not the life that we have been called to, which was done in love, but it was confrontational. And I remember him saying to me, but I feel good with my friends when I drink with them. I feel like we are better friends. We have such good time together. And it was sort of this idea in a nutshell. It's like, well, this makes me feel happy. It makes me feel good at the time. So why would God not want me to do it? And I remember having this thought of like, you know what else makes people feel good and bonded together? Sex. <laughs> That's another thing that does that. People feel pretty good and pretty bonded when when that happens. And um, and there's some boundaries in scripture around that. And I and then I had this thought of like, you know, what? this can't be the metric because like, I'm sure if you were to rob a bank together, that would be a pretty bonding experience. Like you would feel pretty tied and together with those people. I'm thinking like Ocean's Eleven people probably felt like, oh, we got a little community now after pulling off this heist. You know, we don't have to parse through all that stuff. But it's just the idea being the metric from that student was, is this going to be something that I enjoy that I could have fun in? Maybe my friends and I will have some laughs. Then it must be a good thing. Why would God not want me to to like that thing? And that was one of the moments when I realized, oh, there's a, a different functional understanding of what God would want. You know, it's not actually what's defined by the scriptures. It's what would make me happy. So <laughs> good stuff. But one of the other differences between this functional understanding of Christianity or religion and actually what the scriptures espouse, which I just find to be beautiful, you know, there's deism in this 
definition. And it's a different sort of deism than classical Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson deism, where it was really just God made the world and took his hands off. It's God made the world, took his hands off, but puts his hands back on when we need him for something. So it's a little bit different than deism, but it's similar that this God is a distant God, not that involved in your life, not that interested in, in what you're doing and really is only involved when you need him to be. And that picture of that kind of God is just not what we see in the scriptures. And, you know, there's a ton of different places to go to with that. But I think what's most interesting is there is a section in the Gospels, which sometimes when I put it in these terms sort of blows me away, where Jesus tells us how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, which is pretty amazing because often prayer is really confusing. And uh, most of us feel pretty satisfied just being confused by it. But Jesus does give us some insight of how to pray. And what he says at the beginning of that prayer is you should address God this way, our father in heaven. You kind of think about, okay, God's been talked about in a lot of different ways in the scriptures. He's creator. He is redeemer. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the commander of the heavenly armies. Like he's seen in a lot of different ways. And yet Jesus says, hey, when you pray to God, call him father, because that's what he is. He's a father to you. It's like, this is the Tozer quote in action. It's like, you can picture God in a lot of different ways. And a lot of them are going to be unhelpful. A lot of them are, are even true, but maybe not exactly what you need when you are praying. Or a lot of them are untrue. And it might be hard to see an accurate image of God all the time. And so he tells us, pray to your father. Imagine God as a father. And I got to tell you, so I've said this about 14,000 times, but every morning Mason and I go out and we pray the Lord's Prayer together and we wave at cars and stuff. And it's become like my favorite part of every day. And every time I say, you know, our father in heaven, I just, it's so cool because like I'm a father holding my son, delighting in him. And it just, it's put this stark reality to me of this is what it means, you know, like a father who just delights in you and is present with you and is holding you and is listening and is not far away, but is actively wanting to be near and to bless you and to listen to you and, and not just give you instruction and discipline you. We can see that as a father, but to be with you and to play with you and laugh with you. And this is just such a radically different image than a distant God who's just there when you need him. And I just think that's crazy. And I think is a distinction between these two worldviews that the Christian worldview in its fullness has a God who is highly active. And, you know, that's something that we have to choose to believe sometimes because a lot of our felt experience is that he's not totally there. But when we follow this moralistic therapeutic deism, we imagine a God who's far away that if we need him, we have to shout to get his attention because he's so far away. And then maybe he'll come. But in this image of a father, it's like he's right there. You don't even shout for him. He's right there ready to be with you. And so I really do think if you were to sort of meditate on that father image, you would do a lot to distance yourself from the moralistic therapeutic deism idea. So yeah, that makes me think again to this idea of the college student who only calls their parents when they need something and classic image of like a teenager who's got all this angst against their parents. Don't tell me who to be. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you dare like speak into my life. But in the process of like, don't get too close because I don't want you to discipline me or tell me what's right or wrong. I just want to figure it out on my own and not deal with the consequences. Because of that, you also lose the intimacy of the relationship and how it might be scary to have a God who is so deeply invested in our lives and in who we are and what we do and what we think about, what we enjoy, what we don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, That might be scary, but also with it is like this really (laughs) incredible intimacy and I'm like feeling, I don't know, I feel like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that this is actually the reality of our universe. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think students might imagine that one of the challenges for me in the podcast medium is I just don't get to use any charts. 
Like, there's no... Because <laughs> I would really like to whiteboard this. Because I think that you could plot all world religions and kind of quasi-religions like we're talking about today on a axis of, is God like really, really other? Is God distant and far? And that's a good thing because God is completely other than us and needs to be the object of Mm -hmm. awe and worship. And um, if God was too close, God wouldn't actually be worthy of those things. Or is God like really available? You know, is God just right there? Maybe even part of the universe or part of me, you know, and like the religious words of theological words we use for that are transcendent and imminent, right? And so deism is a very transcendent religion that God is kind of out there and and moralistic therapeutic deism has kind of tried to marry those things and made God both transcendent, but also imminent in the moments we need him, but not a moment more because we wouldn't want God invading our lives. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that Christianity, like classical Orthodox Christianity, actually in the incarnation, in God invading the universe in Jesus Christ, actually is the worldview that blows the doors off of that distinction where God is completely other, completely holy, yet so close and imminent and then even in wells us in the Holy Spirit. But these are actually very specific doctrines that are very specific to the Christian worldview. And you don't actually get that fatherhood of God. And I, as a father, you want to be like really, really available, but you don't want to be your kid's best friend. You have to maintain some distance so that you can discipline and form. And I think that that's part of the reason that you know, some of the actual language the scripture uses about who God is, is an important corrective to these ideas ideas that we uptake from the culture. To kind of maybe to wrap up some of the, I wouldn't say critiques, but maybe some of the things that we need to add to this picture in order to make it robust is that Christianity is specific both propositionally and historically. I mean, our whole story is built out of the idea that God invaded the universe in a specific Roman backwater at a specific time, at a specific place, and defeated evil in a specific act. These things have historical content. And the way that God interacts with history tells us a lot about God's character. And so if we want to know God, one of the major problems I had with my own moralistic therapeutic deism is that God was really nothing more than a reflection of my own desires. And that is just not a very interesting God. The God that Christians have worshipped for thousands of years is a very particular entity and deity, incidentally, is triune and you know invaded reality as an individual who is both God and person. And so there are some specifics. And I feel like the pursuit of God without caring about specifics of God's personality and being, when they are so kind of specific and interesting and deep, mm-hmm. is really to miss out on the gift of God in the universe. And one of the things that we're doing that you know might seem weird, 
is my family's learning the Athanasian Creed. That's nice. just the rule of faith that the church came up with shortly after it formed that said, you know, these are the things that all Christians always and everywhere believe. And so we can disagree about a lot of things, but here are the things that, yeah. you know, this is kind of the entry level. <laughs> you know, if, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you should learn these things. And it's raised some pretty awkward conversations. For example, there's a line in there, born of the Virgin Mary. And so, of course, my children ask... <laughs> What's a virgin? So, you know, we actually have an intentional and robust sex ed program in our family. So we didn't have to introduce the right. whole realm of sexuality in order to just define virgin. That would have been awkward. Um, but the, the other thing they ask is, what's a Pontius Pilate? Because there's a line in there that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the idea that this eccentric Roman governor would be in the statement of faith of everything that Christians have always and everywhere believed suggests that the God we worship is very specific, not only in the qualities of the deity, but also mm -hmm. in the interactions with the physical world. And that's just a much more interesting God. Going back to our very beginning conversation, this isn't a generic God. This isn't the Apple Zaps God. Yeah. This is a very specific God that you can know and know more and love and grow and love. Man, I just feel like that is just so profound. What you've just done is cut to the core of what's underneath these tenets is that actually it's all about you, but it's all about you in the sense that it's all about you following the God that you're creating in your head. You know, not a God that is specific, but a God that that you want God to be like. I, I was thinking about when Jesus is on the cross and there's two criminals on his sides and one of the criminals says, hey, Jesus, please remember me when you're in paradise. And the other criminal is saying, hey, like, get us down from here. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Let's, you have the power. Let's get us down from here. And I think what's interesting is they both acknowledge mm -hmm. a God, both criminals, but basically one of them is acknowledging Jesus' authority and saying, hey, I'm at your mercy. You know, you are God in front of me. And so please just have mercy on me. And another one is saying, Jesus, if I had your powers, if I had divinity in me, what I would be doing right now is I would be taking myself down from the cross and I'd be doing the same for the people next to me. And so I want you, Jesus, to use your divinity the way I would use divinity. And it's just such an interesting difference and in kind of what you're describing when you said that God is a self-defining term. I'm thinking what you mean by that is that it, often in our culture, God is seen as just this general ethereal thing who wants positivity in the world. So he's sort of malleable to whatever you think that should be. But no, 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 no. Like this God is a God with opinions and attributes and character traits and things that make him happy and things that make him angry. Like he has got actual character attributes that you cannot make him what you want him to be because he is who he is. That's like, that's Yahweh. I am what I am. That's actually, that's really, really, really profound. And I think that really does cut to the core of what's underneath these five moralistic therapeutic deism tenets is it's all about me, not just in a hope I get what I want, but it's about me in that it's about the God that I've created, which is really just myself. And with that, I guess, you know, if this is something that people have internalized into their lives and think that, wow, isn't it great that God wants me to be happy? Isn't it great that God's there at my beck and call to solve my problems? It's like, actually, if the world was ordered that way, that wouldn't be terrible. You know, it's like they're a pretty powerful person on my team. And so sometimes I worry that doing this kind of thing is actually feels like bad news to people listening because I feel like you're taking away something that they've held dear or at the very least the way they've sought God. And maybe it makes God seem less interested in their happiness or whatever. And so it's just kind of an awkward question because we've sort of been talking about how it's not all about your happiness. But I kind of want to ask the, <laughs> the question, how is it good news what we're talking about? Like, why should someone be excited that the Christian worldview is actually more robust than this moralistic therapeutic deism? Is it good news that God is? 
is different than this God that's portrayed here? Or is it just news? Is it just what's true? Well, I think a couple things about that. First of all is that if you change your objective function of what the goal of your life is, if it becomes, you know, a right understanding and interaction with what's real rather than optimizing happiness, then it is good news along the lines of that new objective function, you know, because moralistic therapeutic theism isn't real. And if you think God's job is to make you happy and emotionally full, well, at some point, the evidence to the contrary is just going to mount to the point that you're going to walk away from it. It's not going to be a substantial component of your life. You may mm-hmm. keep it as like a pet religion, but it's not going to be a motivating force in your life. Right. And so it's good news and that if you kind of recognize mm-hmm you know, what the goal of reality is, then the sooner you kind of get in line with the goal of reality, the the less you'll feel betrayed. And I think that's one of the big things we see is that a lot of people feel betrayed by Christianity later in life because they think it's going to protect them from things. It just doesn't. You know, the part of the hurt and suffering of life is part of how we come to know the depths of God. All right. So I think one way that's good news is that I just think that understanding reality is just generally good news. But here's the other way that I think it's good news is that, you know, Christianity is just way more interesting. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, the God that I worshipped as a reflection of myself, it was like as interesting as I was which is not very, you know, that cut is actually really <laughs> dull. It doesn't go very deep, right? But a triune creator who is described in the scriptures multiple times as having a voice like rushing waters, who created with love, you know, experiences rebellion and betrayal and responds by invading that creation in a complicated way, a uncreated, created thing and pours out love in a melding of transcendent imminence and makes relationship to this transcendent triune creator available again, that's pretty interesting. Right. And the more you delve into that creator God, into that actual reality, it's just more fun. Here, let me close with this idea. You know, a few years ago, there was a movie called Stepford Wives. And it was actually a bad remake of a 1975 movie called Stepford Wives. (laughs) And it's this kind of weirdly gendered movie. You couldn't do it now. But the basic idea is that there's all of these sad beta males who all felt intimidated by their more interesting and impressive wives. And so they all get together in this community and through some technology that's not clear, replace their wives with robots that basically serve their needs and desires. And the idea here is that it's just better to have a spouse that is really just interested in your needs and your emotional desires. And it would be better if like that's what marriage was like. And um, of course, it's a deconstruction because, you know, the best parts of marriage are where I run into the limits of myself. You know, one of the things that Tim Keller says about why marriages fail, marriages don't fail because you get tired of the other person. Marriages fail because you get tired of seeing your true self through the eyes and critique of the other person. And so essentially what moralistic therapy theism does is it creates a step for God, that we have a God that Mm. just kind of tells us we're great and is interested in our needs and stays out of the way when we want to watch football with the guys, but isn't actually very interesting 
thing isn't someone who has any ability to change us and develop us. And I just think that that the robots and the Stepford Wives morality tale, there's no attraction there. You know, the most valuable aspects of my marriage are, you know, I look back at who I was before I encountered my wife for decades. And like, I just feel really bad for that sad person who didn't have the benefit of this you know, multi-decadal forming relationship. So basically, you're saying more or less therapeutic deism has, just like you said, created this Stepford God, meaning it's everything that you think you would want God to be there That's for you right. when you need him, not there when it's going to be inconvenient almost like a fantasy god that you'd think oh, how great would it be if that would be the universe but it's like okay once you live with that for a while you realize that's not interesting and that's not interesting because that's just you like you're basically worshiping yourself at that point you're basically worshiping this is my idea of what a god should be and even what i described with my ping pong sessions i sort of created this understanding of what christianity should be based on an idea that i had and it's sort of exciting it's like wow this is really cool that, that you can kind of think this way and uh, wouldn't it be interesting if this is how God actually meant that verse? That kind of stuff. Then after a while, you just realize this is just so thin. It doesn't have any legs to stand on, you know? And it's like when things do get hard, when things do get puzzling, there's nothing to fall back on. There's no sense of reassurance. It feels like the whole system's gone wrong if you are going through a period of suffering or if you are going through a period of discontentment or you are going through a period of anything sort of negative. It's like, well, if the point is to be happy, why isn't God making me happy? Oh, maybe God just doesn't exist. You know, maybe the whole thing was just sort of made up. But it's like, well, no, no, no. That's because you've had this expectation that that's what God's supposed to do. He's supposed to make you happy. And so it's a pretty logical conclusion of if you are not happy, then God's either really bad at his job, which if he is, he's probably not worth worshiping, or this is just a human invention that we've created. And what's ironic about that is if you were to reject God at that point, you would be rejecting a human creation because that's not the God of the scriptures. And yeah, I guess I'm talking myself into like the good news about this is that the claim is that because it's real, because this God is an actual God with actual characteristics and attributes and is not just what we hope him to be, that because of that, he's actually worth our worship mm-hmm. and we get to know him for our, our whole lives. We don't create him. We, we get to know him, you know. And this is one of the reasons why people might have noticed this, but we never talk about it. When we talk about the God of the Hebrew scriptures, we use the name Yahweh. And that's been controversial over the years about whether or not that should be done. But basically, anytime the Hebrew scriptures use the word Lord in all caps, it's using the proper name of God. And the translators just make it Lord. But the reason that I feel like we do that in this moment, although we've never talked about it explicitly, is because we want people to know that the scriptures aren't talking about a generic God. They're talking about Yahweh, someone who has characteristics and traits and desires and, you know, someone who we can know and know more and know more deeply. Yeah. Shall we move to some quarantine corner, my friends? Let's do it. Quarantine corner. This is like literally my favorite part of the whole week right here is when we get to talk about how we're filling our our quarantine time. So you guys know the drill by this point. We've lived our lives for a week and then we're going to give you some uh, recommendations on on how you could be filling your quarantine life. But Quarantine Corner, who would like to go first? Lead us off. I can go first. Nice. My Quarantine Corner this week has to do with food. It's currently 9.22 and this is, I think I want to go first because I'm hungry and I'm thinking about this. (laughs) Yesterday was Mother's Day, and I I made sweet potato pancakes for my family. Wow. 
Have you guys ever had sweet potato pancakes? No. Yes, they're okay. the best. I, and, well, and, and let you know, I will let you know, currently, I'm highly skeptical. So I'm going to have to be oh, sold on this. Okay, <laughs> that's great. That's great <laughs> news. They're the best. They're so good. So my quarantine corner this week is that everyone should attempt to make some sweet potato pancakes. I actually am not a huge fan of pancakes because usually I eat them and I feel like just like really heavy and like nasty afterwards. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what a great way to start off my day. <laughs> I feel terrible now. But sweet potato pancakes are exactly what they sound like. You just roast some sweet potatoes, mash them up, put them in your batter, and it makes them like – they're like less dense. They're a little bit more substantial, and they have a really nice flavor to them because they have sweet potatoes in them, which are the best. And they're not hard to make, but they will take time, which I think these days is a good thing because you get to fill your hours with something. It'll take you a while to make. And I think everyone should give it a go. The only thing I will say about these pancakes is that they're hard to cook all the way through. So you have to be really patient with them when you're actually like putting the batter on. They will look like they're done, but you should probably give them like another, honestly, like five minutes on the stove. Wow. Five minutes. That's Yeah. A long time. Yeah. This is some next level detailed analysis. Yeah. Well, I'm a fan of anything sweet potato, sweet potato, French fries. I make all the time. That's so good. Here's the rust belt take on sweet potato French fries. Like out here, they serve them with ketchup, which is just, I don't understand that. In Buffalo, if you get sweet potato French fries, they serve them with maple syrup and brown sugar, which is like, the, oh, honestly, yeah. the only way to do that. Um. <laughs> I do like them with ketchup, but my mom always says when she's eating them, like, oh, my gosh, these are just like candy. I have thoughts on sweet potatoes, but I'm going to hold them. <laughs> All right, mine is a movie, which I didn't actually watch this week. We've been introducing our children to The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, which I also recommend. <laughs> but I listen to a podcast sometimes that talks about older movies and analyzes them. And this week they did Groundhog Day, which is one of my yeah. absolute <laughs> favorite movies. But the thing awesome. they did with it is they tied it to this moment we're in in the quarantine. Like Miriam's poem from last week, if you've forgotten which day it is, you're not alone, right? And that's really the theme of Groundhog Day. And so my recommendation is to, you know, Groundhog Day, they say in the podcast that it started out as just like a second rate Bill Murray movie, but it turned into this film that actually lots of religious traditions cherish because it does kind of investigate these themes of, you know, what is the character building value of mundane repetition? And if you watch the mm. film with that frame, I think it could be a really like ennobling exercise. And it's also just a really fun movie. It yeah, is. And Bill Murray one. is a, a treasure. And uh, his best movie would be, I'm sure we all agree, Space Jam. False. You didn't say it at the same time as me. But... Right. Oh, let's try it again. Yeah. One, two, let's three. Groundhog Day. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to go to mine. I also have a food related one, Merm. Mm-hmm. And when I say food related, I mean it's entirely food. <laughs> Not loosely related. I'm going to tell you the title of my quarantine corner and then we're going to back up and tell you a little backstory. Okay. okay I like so it. here it is. Buttermilk chicken. Oh, buttermilk chicken. Is that from salt, fat, acid, heat? It's from salt, fat, acid, heat. That's what I'm oh, talking about. Oh, I've been wanting to make it's that so forever. Good. Okay. So, okay. So a uh, little backstory. We'll back up. We'll back up. Something that I have bemoaned about myself for a long time is that I feel like I don't have any hobbies. I've always felt like I'm a hobbyless individual. There's people who like love hiking, love biking, love like mountain climbing. All the things you do with a Subaru. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the things you do with a Subaru. The reasons I got a Subaru. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And I've always thought if I had a day to myself, what would I even do? And so sometimes I thought, who am I? If I didn't have Katie in my life and I just had like a day to myself, like what would, what would I do? And so I recently made the decision of I'm going to intentionally add a hobby and it's going to be cooking. I'm going to intentionally add the cooking hobby into my arsenal. It's like in the matrix when you can just download information into you. It's like, that's what I would download, you know? And <laughs> this is the most Peter thing. It's awesome. Yeah. And here's why. Okay. It's perfect for me because I like, I love food. I actually really do like cooking when I do it. I'm incredibly slow. I could not be a slower chef, but it's also great. It's hospitable. You can bless with it. And it's in my house. Mm -hmm. I don't have to leave my house Mm -hmm. for hours and hours and hours to go do this hobby. So I don't have to leave my family. So it's great. The other thing that you should know about me is that nothing offends me more than dry poultry. That's true. You could knock on my door at two in the morning and scream obscenities at me. Call me names. Tell me I, I can suck an egg. And... I would be offended, sure, but you give me a dry piece of turkey or a dry piece of chicken, we're done. We're done. I, I just can't, I can't, I can't stand for it. Okay. And so combining these two realities into one glorious thing is that I've been reading Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin. Is it Nosrat? Yeah. Yeah. But Samin. And this is my introduction to cooking. And so I'm learning all about salt, I'm learning all about fat, acid, whatever. And then one of her big recipes is this buttermilk chicken. So you roast the whole chicken in the oven, which feels to me like mm-hmm. the most terrifying thing you can do. Because either you're going to just way overcook it, then you got dry chicken and you're a culprit. Or you undercook it and you poison yourself, which I've done a few times too. So anyway, I follow this recipe and I am cooking an actual whole chicken in the actual oven. I'm doing it. And it was so good. Nice. It was so good. And the other thing that bugs me is when people talk about recipes and they say, oh, it's easy. All you have to do is, you know, get the meat four days early and then salt the meat and then cut it into perfect cubes and it can't be bigger than that. And you have to put it in the oven for four hours and then you have to put it, turn the oven off for two hours and you got to put it in the fridge. Then you got to flip it over. Then you got to, it's not easy. Okay. But (laughs) I will tell you, this is easy. It's literally salt and buttermilk. That's it. And then you put it in the oven. There's some instructions. The hardest part was tying the bird up. But I created a delicious chicken that fed my family and myself. Good job, Peter. I'm proud of you. Anyway, if you want to impress people, this is the thing to do. I was told in college by a professor, you just need to know how to cook two things well. That's right. If you can cook two things well, you'll make it through life. And this can be one of them. You will always be impressive if you can cook a whole chicken. Noted. You know what's great about this? What's that? You can use your leftover buttermilk to make some sweet potato pancakes. (laughs) That's a great call. All right, my friends, that is it for your pod and your staff. Stanford and Merm, thanks for going on this journey with me, and thanks for helping me and helping us see the beauty in our story. And as you know, your pod and your staff is up and running on Apple Podcasts, and it has been so, so, so fun to hear all the different people listening to the pod. And if you want, you can give us a rating and a review on the podcast app, and we'd love to read it. And as always, thanks to Josh Paskey and Kyle Jung, who created the music for your pod and your staff. It is tremendous. And this is the last week to get in questions for the Q&A podcast coming up in two weeks. So if you got them, send them to me at pnittler at fbcdavis.org. And finally, lovely, lovely college life. We love you more than the sophomore dudes crave a victory in song pong. We'll see you next week.